Hey there everyone and welcome back to another episode of Med Talks. Today's podcast is part of the Finals Countdown series where we're providing revision talks for medical students to help them with their upcoming exams. This podcast episode is belongs to the cardiology series and in today's talk we're going to be talking about angina. So first things first, let's try and define angina. Angina is a condition where there is an imbalance between the amount of oxygen being supplied to the heart and the amount of oxygen that the heart needs. In other words, there's a case of demand exceeding supply. And this inadequate supply leads to ischemia and it causes the classic central chest pain or discomfort that patients can have. There are numerous risk factors for the development of angina. Many of these are risk factors for most cardiovascular conditions and they include smoking, diabetes mellitus, sedentary lifestyle, low amounts of exercise, hyperlipidemia from the consumption of fatty foods in the diet, and hypertension. And these factors play a role by causing atherosclerosis in the coronary artery walls, which leads to narrowing and reduced blood supply. Also, having a family history of cardiovascular disease increases one's risk. Other potential risk factors for angina include anemia, and this is due to the reduced oxygen carrying capacity of the blood, aortic stenosis because this leads to ventricular hypertrophy, and the thicker ventricular muscle demands more oxygen, so it causes demand to exceed supply. And for similar reasons, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can also lead to angina. So there are two main variants of angina, and these are stable angina, where the chest pain or discomfort is precipitated by factors such as exercise, where there is an increase in myocardial oxygen demand. And other, other precipitants include cold weather and emotional stress. Chest pain is not present during rest. And the second main type is unstable angina. And here, the chest pain can occur at any time, even at rest. And this is part of a phenomenon called acute coronary syndrome. And we will talk about this in a separate episode. So the typical presentation of a patient with stable angina is the following. A 55-ish year old man or woman who experiences central crushing chest pain or discomfort, which may radiate to the neck, the shoulder or the arms, on the left side typically. It is commonly brought about by physical exercise such as walking or running or even emotional stress. Typically, the patient will have a history which includes one of the previously mentioned risk factors, such as they are a heavy smoker or they have a history of hypertension. They may have a poor diet which is rich in fatty foods and the exercise levels may be low. Now let's think about how angina is diagnosed. So NICE have developed guidelines on making a diagnosis of stable angina. And they have stated the following. A constricting discomfort in the front of the chest or neck, shoulder, jaw or arms that is precipitated by physical exertion and relieved by rest or glycerol trinitrate spray within around five minutes. If the pain is continuous, unrelated to activity, brought on by breathing or associated with other symptoms such as dizziness, vomiting, palpitations or difficulty swallowing, then angina is less likely. So when thinking about diagnosing angina, it's important to explore the patient's past medical and social history. So do they have hypertension or a history of diabetes? Do they smoke? How often do they exercise and what is their diet like? 
do they have a family history of cardiovascular disease? So that's the history. Now let's think about the physical examination. A cardiac examination is important because it may relieve the potential causes of the angina. For example, an ejection systolic murmur may be heard in the case of aortic stenosis, or a patient may look pale if they are anemic. Now let's explore the key investigations which are required to make the diagnosis. Firstly, you can take some blood tests, so a full blood count to exclude any anemia. A 12-lead ECG should be taken, especially if the diagnosis can't be made clinically. And I'll pause here for a moment to let you have a think about what the ECG may show. So the cardinal feature on an ECG is ST depression. Although if patients have no chest pain, the ECG may be normal. And so stable angina must not be ruled out if the ECG is normal. So the ST segment is the flat isoelectric section of the ECG between the S wave and the beginning of the T wave. The ST segment represents the interval between ventricular depolarization and repolarization. And it can either be upsloping, downsloping, or horizontal. A horizontal or downsloping ST depression, which is 0.5 millimeters or more in two or more contiguous leads, indicates myocardial ischemia. Further specialist investigations can be done in patients where stable angina cannot be excluded by clinical assessment alone. And these include a 64 slice CT coronary angiography if the clinical assessment indicates angina or clinical assessment indicates non-anginal chest pain, but the ECG is suggestive of angina. Now, if the 64 slice CT coronary angiography has shown that there is coronary artery disease of uncertain functional significance or it's non-diagnostic, then non-invasive functional imaging should be offered. And these include a stress echocardiography, a contrast enhanced MR perfusion, or MRI imaging for stress-induced wall motion abnormalities. And if non-invasive functional imaging results are inconclusive, then invasive coronary angiography should be offered. So the diagnosis of stable angina can be confirmed, and this is as per NICE, if there is significant coronary artery disease found during invasive or 64 slice CT coronary angiography. And significant coronary artery disease is 70% or more of diameter stenosis of at least one major epicardial artery segment or 50% or more diameter stenosis in the left main coronary artery. So that's quite a mouthful and a lot to take in. And if you're unsure about any of that, then do go ahead and check out the NICE website where the guidelines are laid out over there. So we've talked about the history, the examination and the diagnosis. Let's think about how we're going to manage patients with angina. So for episodes of angina, the first line medication is glycerol trinitrate. This is a short acting nitrate and the way this works is it induces the production of nitric oxide. Nitric oxide acts as a vasodilator, so it dilates the blood vessels and it improves the blood supply to the heart. And common side effects of GTN to be aware of are headaches and low blood pressure. So it's used for the short-term relief of angina symptoms. If the first dose does not resolve the symptoms after five minutes, then patients can repeat it. If after five minutes of the second dose, the pain is still present, then the person is advised to call an emergency ambulance. 
So that's just, that's a short-term relief. Now we need to think about the long-term management. And the first-line treatment for stable angina is either a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker. And which one is chosen depends on the individual person. For example, if a patient also has asthma, then a beta blocker is contraindicated, and so then a calcium channel blocker would be would be used. And in patients where, with no contraindications for either, one drug can be tried out first, and if there is no improvement, then the other can be tried. And if a calcium channel blocker is used as monotherapy, then this would be a rate-limiting one, such as verapamil or diltiazem. If it's used in combination with a beta blocker, then a long-acting dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker should be used, such as modified release nifedipine. The reason for this is that verapamil should not be prescribed concurrently with a beta blocker because there is a risk of complete heart block. If both drug types are contraindicated or a patient is intolerant to both, then there are other medications available. These include a long-acting nitrate, evabradine, nicorandil or renolazine. And I'll go through the mechanisms of these shortly. A third drug should only be added when the person's symptoms are not properly controlled with two drugs and when they are waiting for revascularization or if revascularization is not appropriate. Other medications are used as secondary prevention and these include aspirin 75 mg daily and ACE inhibitors for patients with angina and diabetes. Endostatin may also be offered if patients have high cholesterol levels. So here's a quick pharmacology reminder for you. Beta blockers such as bisoprolol inhibit the beta-1 adrenergic receptors which are found in heart muscle cells and heart conduction tissue. This blocks catecholamine, so adrenaline and noradrenaline in stimulation of the receptors which therefore reduces cardiac contractility and reduces the heart rate. Calcium channel blockers such as verapamil block the voltage-gated calcium channels which are found in the sinoatrial and the atrioventricular nodes within the heart and this reduces the ventricular rate. Calcium channels are also present in the smooth muscle which line the blood vessels. By relaxing the tone of this smooth muscle, calcium channel blockers can also dilate the blood vessels. Evabradine acts on a pacemaker current channel, the IF channel which is expressed at the sinoatrial node and this action reduces the cardiac pacemaker activity, so slowing the heart rate down. Nicorando acts as a vasodilator through activation of the ATP-sensitive potassium channels. And renolazine inhibits the voltage-gated sodium channels in the heart muscle, which reduces the intracellular calcium, and so reduces cardiomyocyte contraction, which leads to less oxygen demand. Okay, so hopefully the patient's angina is controlled with medication alone. However, this may not always be the case. In these situations, intervention is required in the form of angiography or a coronary artery bypass graft or a cabbage. The first choice tends to be angiography or percutaneous coronary intervention because it is more cost effective. But if PCI is not appropriate, then a cabbage can be considered. And in some cases, a cabbage is more effective than a PCI. For example, in patients with diabetes, patients who are 65 years old or over, or they have complex three-vessel disease. So, percutaneous coronary intervention is a non-surgical procedure where a catheter is inserted into the femoral artery and it's threaded using fluoroscopy to the coronary artery and at the point of blockage, a balloon tip covered with a stent is inflated. Once the stent is firmly in place and the atherosclerotic plaque is compressed, the balloon is deflated and withdrawn. 
A coronary artery bypass graft is where the great saphenous vein in the leg is removed and one end is attached to the aorta or a main branch of the aorta and the other is attached to the obstructed artery just after the obstruction to restore blood flow. So if angina is not treated properly, then it can lead to complications. And these include the development of unstable angina or a myocardial infarction, both which are part of the acute coronary syndrome. And we will be discussing those in a separate episode. So stay tuned for that one. So there you have it, that's angina. Today we've talked about why angina occurs, how patients present with angina, how it's diagnosed, and how it's managed, both medically and surgically. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and found it useful. Please remember to follow our, our page, podcast pages, subscribe to our channels, and share these with your friends and your peers who will also find this episode useful. We have plenty more episodes coming up in the cardiology series and several series after that. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you in the next one. Goodbye.